Hello and welcome to the Humankind podcast, brought to you by Humanist Society Scotland. I'm Emma Wadsworth-Jones, Humanist at Risk Coordinator for Humanist International and your host for the podcast. In honour of our takeover, this episode has an international focus and we'll be speaking to humanists involved in our international work. First up is Thought for the Podcast, hosted in this episode by Rosalind Mould. Rosalind is a pioneer of free thought in Africa, the former president of the Humanist Association of Ghana, and in 2019 became the first African woman elected to the board of Humanist International. Hello everyone, my name is Rosalind Mould and I am a board member at Humanist International and coordinator of the West African Humanist Network. I'm also former president of the Humanist Association of Ghana and the former chair of the African Working Group of AHEU, now known as Young Humanist International. Being in these positions has given me the opportunity to know and work with several African humanist organizations and individual humanists across the continent and helping them build and develop their organizations to become safe spaces and havens for free thought, skepticism and humanism. Many Africans face various degrees of issues as humanists. Most of us have had to live as closeted atheists for a very long time. Here in Ghana, 95% of our 30 million plus population is religious, with 70% being Christians of many denominations, such as Mormonism, Catholics, Anglicans, Pentecostals, Presbyterians, and New Age fundamentalist evangelical churches. About 20% are Islamic, therefore there's little room for humanists to identify as such. Ghanaian humanists face ostracization, stigmatization, and discrimination. Some of us have been disowned by our families. Some of us have been demonized and branded witches. Some of us lack employment, and others have been fired from their jobs for coming out as humanists or atheists. In other parts of Africa, such as Egypt, we have 2013 Abba Sabir's case where he faced three years imprisonment. In 2015, there were also cases from Sharif Gaber and Karim Albana. There's also the case of Mohammed Hisham, who was kicked off live TV in Egypt for coming out as an atheist and has had to flee his country. Mohammed Saleh in Sudan was also arrested and detained for many months. In recent times, we've had the case of Mubarak Bala, who was arrested at his home in Kaduna, Nigeria on the 28th of April 2020 and subsequently moved to Kano, an Islamic Sharia state, to face trial for blasphemy. On the 1st of December 2020, a judge at the High Court in Abuja ruled that Bala be immediately released on bail. However, he's still been detained and his court case has been adjourned till the 20th of April 2021, marking 354 days in arbitrary detention. There are various ways you can help African humanists, especially those at risk of losing their freedom. You may join in their campaigns, such as Mubarak Bala's campaign and others, on the Humanist International website. You can also follow our groups on social media, support our courses, find out information on refugee status on our asylum seeking in your country, donate to our courses and sustainable humanist projects and businesses. Thank you, Rosalyn. Next, we have a conversation between Joseph Maradi and Ina Mossin, who is an international advisor from the Norwegian Humanist Association. Joseph is an Afghan atheist and humanist who was finally granted asylum in Norway this January after a six-year process. 
His asylum was granted after the Norwegian government finally changed its guidance relating to the protection of atheists fleeing persecution. So nice to talk to you, Joseph. I'm very glad you agreed to have this interview. Joseph, your story is already quite well known among Norwegian humanists. But I think it could be useful for our international audience if we spend a little bit of time here at the start talking about you and your background. So if you could start, maybe tell me a little bit about what was it like growing up in Afghanistan? Growing up there was very difficult in in a sense um, that people lived very back in time, that uh, uh, religion played a very central role in their everyday life. People basically lived every day to just go to the mosque. I thought everybody in the world was basically Muslims and they were suddenly Muslims and that was it. Yeah, I started criticizing a lot of the way uh, things were practiced, basically. Uh, although they, uh, they call it, I did not directly criticize Islam itself, but I did criticize a lot of the way Taliban operated, uh, attacking civilians and killing civilians. And I, I thought this is not... This is not right, basically. Uh, at that age, doing that was a very big mistake in a way because uh, that led me to... Uh, to uh, they, they, they punished me for what I've done. At the age of 17, so I had to flee uh, to Iran. I started questioning everything in my mind, but of course, I had to hold everything also back. Just, I knew that even questioning even even like saying a word about probably it's the reason it's the Islam itself that all these problems are there this wasn't an option and it was in my mind just hammering all the time and going back and not controlling basically my thought and I, I was very afraid that people would read my mind what I was thinking and then at the time, I had to, of course, continue praying the way I did, because that's part of the everyday thing. If you don't go to mosque, you have to give answer to people. But even in Iran, I didn't know a lot about atheism. I didn't know a lot about Christianity. I didn't know anything, basically. I just heard that there are people who don't believe. And as a teenager and child, I believe that's weird. So how central then would you say that your atheism was for your, your need then to leave the country? Well, um, first of all, it's impo- impossible to be an atheist or be a, a free thinker, basically, to uh, live there. There's one option. You don't do anything with your belief. You you just forget it. You just continue to do what you do. Go to mosques, do the prayer and everything. Um, or if you start doing a, a small move, which is goes against... Uh, value of Islam, you know, you have no no chance of living there. I remember being like not having and not believing in anything. It was very difficult. Like suddenly I'm empty of everything. I don't know how to live my life basically. And I had to, there was like this empty void that I had to, I had, there was this big void I had to fill with something else that with the way of learning to live without a religion. Um, so, Joseph, um, after you arrived then in Norway as an asylum seeker back in, was it 2015 or 2016? Um, I guess it was a huge relief then to finally being able to be open about your life stance. 
in a way, yeah. It was, for me, it was actually a very big thing because I the freedom I had at that time was the, the probably the biggest freedom I ever had in my life. But at the same time, you you must remember that I lived with a lot of other refugees in the camp that uh, was like around 100 refugees or so. Um, these people would pray and uh, had the uh, mosques in different part of the building and I still had these flashbacks and I was trying to escape from the camp and go out and do whatever to not be there actually and for the first uh, five months it was uh, it was not I would say it was not bad after that two months I got uh, transferred to Oslo and then and that was my basically the best time I ever had because there was a lot of possibility in Oslo. I found a lot of friends at that two month period, and after three months, they just uh, the rejection just was right away. I was like, uh, "Wow, this went fast!" I uh, like I thought at that time, and it just stays. Yeah, we it states in the in the application or in the rejection uh, papers that yeah we believe you are an atheist we believe you don't believe in god and uh, uh yeah but if you go to Kabul uh, it's a big city no one would know who you are if you don't tell people what you believe if people ask you don't don't say anything basically or in in other words just say you are muslim but so basically the authorities ask you to uh, remain silent about your life stance after returning to Afghanistan. Exactly. Basically, I have to pretend to be a uh, somebody else that I'm not. From where? From a country where I have uh, I tried to escape yeah, almost half of my life and uh, go back and just pretend, yeah, you're a Muslim. And that's, I think, was for me, who didn't know a lot about the democracy and a lot of other Western culture, was impossible to accept. How is that possible? Because freedom of speech is one of the most precious thing I would say the Western countries have. So tell me a little bit more about the, the appeal process, uh, because after the Norwegian Immigration Authority's decision um, to not give you asylum, you appealed in court, right? I Basically, they said no at the, that stage and uh, after we after three weeks and then I have appealed to the district court in Oslo and um, I think that was the most disappointing part of the whole thing and actually that motivated me to fight you know and the more I, I got so on justice the more I saw that I had a different vision basically about how the system functions how the democracy in, 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 a, in a court in a democratic country would fu- functions and that was not the case, what I experienced. And uh, fortunately, they just sent the case to the highest court of the appeal court, actually, or the, the, the immigration appeal court. And there, uh, there was three judges and four co-judges. So I, uh, yeah, I got, to, I got the asylum there. I was in January uh, this year. I, I owe everything that I, I have today actually to the to, to people, to the friend and to the to the support I've got. Otherwise I would have been deported long, long time ago. Thank you, Joseph and Dina. This is fantastic news for Joseph and for humanists, atheists and the non-religious who must be protected by domestic and international law. 
This was a great piece of campaigning work by the Norwegian Humanist Association, and Joseph Moradi has shown immense strength by fighting this case for himself and for others in his situation across the globe. We hope that other nations will follow Norway's example. Next up is Humankind regular Brian Ego from the Glasgow Skeptics Group. This week, in fact for the podcast, Brian asks us to think about the implications of the powerful being able to lie on social media without sanction, and the harm that it can cause. Glasgow Skeptics, we salute those around the world that use whatever platform they have to educate, form, to expose inconvenient truths, to campaign for a better world, or just to express their thoughts and beliefs, or lack thereof. Many run the risk of retribution for doing so. Unfortunately, our attention, and that of the general public, is more frequently drawn to those on the flip side of that coin. Honesty seems to be an increasingly rare commodity these days. Looking at it objectively, though, it may have always been this bad, but now we have more tools at our disposal to research and refute. Now, I've only got 275 followers on Twitter, and I think most of them are bots, so the influence I have is minimal. That means the potential consequences of me saying something untrue on that platform are minimal, allowing me to tweet my dad jokes and societal observations without significant forethought. I would argue, though, that as your number of followers increases and your influence along with it, the more responsibility you should have to get your facts right and to carefully consider the implications of your words. Sadly, though, in many instances, the opposite happens. Unfortunately, the consequences of these are deadly at the best of times, let alone in the middle of a global pandemic. The prime example, of course, has to be Donald Trump's reaction to losing the presidential election last November. His resulting Twitter storm fomented disquiet in his supporter base with the evidence-free assertion that the election had been stolen. The attempted insurrection at the Capitol in January finally resulted in a Twitter ban, but only after lives had been lost. Prior to that, his incendiary tweets were still allowed to go out, but with attached fact-checking warnings and references. The ban was controversial, but it highlights the uncomfortable fact that there's a line to be drawn somewhere between freedom of expression and refusing to amplify dangerous ideas. No two people would draw that line in exactly the same place, but as a sceptic and a humanist, I'd certainly argue that the line belongs in a place where lives aren't put at risk purely to give already powerful people a massive platform to tell lies. Further on the subject of fact-checking, Facebook have courted controversy on a number of occasions regarding their failure to control disinformation on their platform. Of particular note, a 2019 decision not to fact-check posts from politicians. Here's a fun fact for you. In a 2020 Ipsos Mori poll, politicians and government ministers only failed to take the title of least trusted professions because they were pipped at the bottom of the barrel by advertising executives. Now, in the case of mendacious marketing, we've got the Advertising Standards Authority to try and stem the tide of disinformation. It's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. And nothing is what we have in terms of an equivalent for politicians. Some would argue that journalists are there to hold their feet to the flames. But the fact that Piers Morgan, of all people, was at the sharp end of skewering politicians for the government's mishandling of the Covid crisis 
proves that we're in a sorry state. It's not that difficult, though. In pre-COVID times, when we at Glasgow Skeptics held pre-election hustings events, we had live fact-checkers at hand to capture, investigate and comment on any claims being made during the event. It had a tangible effect on the candidates. They had to be considerably more careful than they might normally be, so it can be done. Another sliver of hope comes from a new study co-authored by MIT scholars. It finds that most people who share false news stories online do so unintentionally and that their sharing habits can be modified through reminders about accuracy. So, I don't have all the answers, but there are certainly some tools available to help us chip away at the problem. On a personal level, I'd encourage you to hold facts and evidence in the highest regard and encourage others to do so, especially the ones you vote for. Please challenge misinformation whenever it's possible and safe for you to do so. That was great. Thank you, Brian. Mubarak Bala is a name that will by now be familiar to many of you. He's the president of the Humanist Association of Nigeria and was detained nearly a year ago after accusations of blasphemy. Humanist International have been working alongside a legal team and Mubarak's supporters in Nigeria to have him freed. In the next segment, you'll hear me, Leo Igwe, who is a humanist and Nigerian human rights activist, and James Ebor, who is a lawyer and heads up Mubarak's legal team in conversation about Mubarak's case. Leo, could you give us an update on the campaigning from your side? Yes, the campaign is up and running, and we are still doing our best to rally both local and international support to get Mubarak released. But that we have been doing this for almost one year now is an indication that um, there's still something missing in terms of the local efforts or the international efforts being made. Have you heard anything from Mubarak? Do you know how he is? Yes, Mubarak calls occasionally from the prison. Apparently, he feels frustrated uh, because of lack of movement on his case and lack of readiness or willingness on the part of the government of Kano State to prosecute or release him. And um, he he's also, you know, feeling worried that, of course, the father might be working with the Muslim authorities in Kano to make sure he remains in detention. And, of course, he's trying to find a way to unravel, you know, the complexities in terms of the people who are actually responsible for keeping him behind bars uh, all this while. So the wife saw him some months ago and said he looked emaciated. And there was a time I also spoke with him. He told me he was um, he was sick. And through some help, we managed to get through unofficially across to him in terms of money. He was able to treat himself because our prisons are still uh, torture chambers. Um, they are prisoners. The rights of prisoners are not respected. People are held by, especially in his own case. James, could you give us an update on the legal side? Where are we at now? It's about a year now since Mubarak Bala was abducted from his home 
in Kaduna State by security agencies, taken to Kanu State where he has been held in solitary confinement without trial. This is notwithstanding that we got an order from court, from the Federal High Court Abuja in December for his release. The court also awarded damages against the Inspector General of Police and the Attorney General of the Federation. The police and the Attorney General of the Federation has refused to obey the court order. We are back to court again in an attempt to enforce the court order. We have members all over the world. Are there any particular members that we should be encouraging to take action as their country has more political influence? We want to call on our members all over the world to put pressure on the US government, Britain, France and Germany to demand justice for Mubarak Bala. We are also asking our members to ask their governments to impose sanctions on the Kano State Governor, the Attorney General of Kano State, and the Inspector General of Police, Nigeria. Leo, what's the atmosphere like on the ground for humanists and activists at the moment? Well, it's unsafe, it's dangerous, it's risky. Uh, the situation has worsened because... With the case of Mubarak, a lot of um, humanists from, who have a, a Muslim background have come to light. And the risk that these humanists are facing, there's also a spillover effect, is also affecting the risk all humanists are facing in the country. Because, um, of course, they are seen as a community who actually reject religion or who are critical of religion, whether it is Muslim or Christianity. So the situation is really dangerous, uh, but uh, humanists are mobilizing, organizing and coordinating to see a way to respond to this because this has always been the case. We have to find creative and innovative ways of addressing this risk and bringing our face out there, being more visible. So... Um, the situation is tense, uh, but we are doing whatever we can to see how we can minimize the tension, minimize the mistrust, and begin to relate with the religious community, the Muslim community, you know, with a sense of respect. Because it is actually the fact that they don't see us as equal citizens, people who have the same right as they do. They don't see us as human beings, fully human beings, as non-believers. Things are, things are changing because many, many, many humanists are rejecting, you know, this uh, kind of oppressive second-class citizenship which has been the status quo. And um, we expect that the, the international community, the humanist community, should not say what is going on in Nigeria as a, a local thing, you know, something very distant. I want, we want them to say, use this as a mirror that to reflect or a lens to see and understand some of the challenges, some of the strands of oppression and persecution that free thinkers, humanists, atheists, they suffer, they're subjected to, especially in countries uh, where religion and uh, politics mix 
in a way that undermines the universal human rights, especially of those who do not believe or those who do not, who are critical of religious ideas. So that it is important to send a message that humanists care from wherever they are. And whatever whatever Mubarak is going through, whatever risk we are facing here, is also part and parcel of what, a way we could understand the threats of religious fundamentalism and ext- extremism and the challenges humanists are facing and um, work together to see what we can do to minimize the risk, to address the threat of religious extremism and build a world that is tolerant and one where humanists and religious people, people with faith or people with no faith can live equally together and be able to express their rights and liberties, their views and expressions, because such a world is really a world that is the one that everybody will want to live in. Not a world of oppression, not a world of persecution of people because they made Facebook posts. No, we should reject that, whether it is Mubarak in this case, or it is some other free thinker, let's say in Jordan or Saudi Arabia. We must reject it and we must send this message to those who are holding Mubarak. Let them understand that they're holding humanity hostage. They're holding the progress of human beings hostage. And that those who identify with the values of enlightenment, with the values of rationality and humanity, universal humanity, common humanity, will not keep quiet. We will resist, we will oppose, and we will continue to campaign for the freedom of human beings everywhere. If you would like to find out more about the work we do at Humanist International to support humanists at risk, head over to our website. The link is in the description. To find out more about Mubarak's case specifically and how you can support him, go to freemubarakbala.org. You can also donate to Mubarak's legal fund. We've put the details in the podcast description. To finish up, we have our Fast Five question slot, this week featuring Cathy Crawford, who is convener of the Humanist Society Scotland Edinburgh Local Group and a member of the Society since the year 2000. So hi Cathy and welcome. So you were nominated by our trustee Jim Chalmers to take part today. Have you got any words of thanks for Jim? Oh, Jim is a wonderful person. I would never say anything against Jim. So I think he does a great job on our Edinburgh committee and on the board of trustees. So it's a small thing to to, to please him, I would do anything. There you go, Jim. You've got that on tape now. Okay, so let's begin with your fast five questions. Crystal balls or credit reports? Oh, credit report. Crystal balls, I think, are the stuff of nonsense. Money or free time? Free time, definitely. Fact or fiction? Fiction. I think you get more actual truth in fiction than you get in an awful lot of what's allegedly non-fiction. TV or podcasts? I'm an old-fashioned person, so 
even though I am very impressed with the Humanist podcast and what it does, and it is quite like a radio, which has got the great advantage that you can play it while you're doing other things, um, I actually think I'm a TV person because I just switch it on and it sort of takes care of itself. Um, last question, spring or autumn? Summer's my favourite. Although the colours of autumn are absolutely magnificent, there is that little hint that winter is going to follow. So I think I would have to choose spring. Excellent. Well, that's all of my questions, Cathy. Great answers. Thank you. Now the fun bit. Who would you like to nominate to be the next guest? Well, I would like to nominate Catherine Joshi, who was one of the people that long time back when we first met, she uh, organised the celebrants. I'm not sure if she's going to be able to do it, but if Catherine Joshi can, I think she has got lots of interesting things to tell us. Wonderful. I will do my best to persuade her. <laughs> Thank you, Cathy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Humankind and thanks to the team at Humanist Society Scotland for giving us the chance to talk to you about some of our work. Your support and the support of other humanists around the world allows us to continue fighting for the rights and recognition of humanists worldwide. If you've got any questions, comments or ideas for future episodes, you can email them to podcast at humanism.scot, tweet them to at Humanist Society or follow the Society on Facebook at at Humanist Society Scotland. This episode was produced by Julia Candusi and Kerry Sutherland, with thanks to Julia Moon, Rosalind Mould, Joseph Moradi, Ina Mossin, Brian Ego, Kathy Crawford, Leo Igwe and James Ebor, and was presented by me, Emma Wadsworth-Jones. It is dedicated to Mubarak Bala, Joseph Moradi, and to all of the humanists across the globe who face persecution and danger in their bid to live a life true to their values. <laughs>